Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year! It is the year 2020. 2020! Of the common era. Welcome, one and all. Woo! It's the year of the rat? Yes. <laughs> year of the rat. So or, so that's why I feel so comfortable mouse? these days. No, it's a rat. Yeah. You know why I know this? Why do you know this? It's because Disneyland just announced that they're doing, like, Year of the Mouse celebrations. Uh-huh. Yeah. Should be Mortimer Rat. Right? 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 right. But that's not what we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the year that was by taking a look at two centennials that we missed uh, when, when they, they came by. So it's a look back at 19. Specifically, 1919. Yeah, yeah. Yours is there, mine is there. Yeah, what what did you bring for us, dear? Uh, well, today we are going to talk about the Boston Molassacre. The Molassacre. Yep. That sounds like uh, uh, some crazy deals on, on sugar byproducts. No. What's it going to take me to put you in one of our uh, sugarcane pressing machines? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, goodness. A lot, because that's death. And 0% APR. Uh, the Boston Molassacre mm-hmm. is also known as the Great Molasses Flood. Uh-huh. Uh, and this took place on January 15th, 1919. And I love it. I, I mean, it, it sounds pretty sweet. I, so. I just got to throw out right now that they could totally make this into a Riverdale episode and just like it, make it maple syrup. It's just syrup. It's syrup. Yeah. Just go say. Just go say. So so let's first talk about molasses. Let's learn a little. Let's learn about molasses. Yeah. What is it? It is a, a sugar syrup that is produced as a byproduct of refining sugar out of sugar cane. Or sugar beets. Or sugar beets. Yeah. Really? Sugar beets? Make uh-huh. molasses? It, it, okay. There's different types it can make. Okay. The the product that it produces the type of molasses is a little different depending on if it's sugar cane or sugar beets okay um i believe usually it's sugar cane molasses that we use here Mm -hmm. but sugar beets do make molasses as well yeah so sugar cane is like harvested and you strip off the leaves and you extract the juice and you like crush by crushing it up Mm -hmm. or mashing it and then the juice is boiled down to concentrate and depending on how many times you boil it, it has different names. So after like the first boil, they call it first syrup. Makes sense. Yeah. And then after the second time, it's second or B molasses. They're not very creative here. But then after the third time, it becomes dark and thick and the molasses like we all know, but they call it blackstrap molasses. Blackstra- or sea molasses. Blackstrap molasses is my favorite character from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, compared to, like, sugar, <laughs> molasses has a significant amount of vitamins and minerals. So any. Any would be yeah. significant when compared to sugar. Uh, so one tablespoon has 20% of your daily vitamin B, calcium, magnesium, and iron. Uh, and it's also a good source of potassium. So from now on, when you finish a 5K, you just have a spoonful of molasses. 
Apparently. You don't, you don't need the banana. No. Through, through history, molasses has been like a dietary supplement. Mm-hmm. And it, there, there's truth to it. It's not quite as like, you know, fake as other things. Mm-hmm. Good vitamin supplement. Yeah. Candy canes are my vitamin J. You just sort of turn them. So molasses, in addition to being used for baking, uh, it's used in animal feed, fertilizer, uh, and is uh, turned into ethanol. Mm -hmm. Going to this event, uh, the Purity Distilling Company recently in... Like, 1917. Very recent. Very recent. Well, like, recently around when this story takes place, Sure, sure. In 1917, they were acquired by the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. And they operated a facility at uh, 529 Commercial Street in the North End neighborhood of Boston. Now, the North End neighborhood is the city's oldest residential community that has been continuously inhabited since, like, the 1630s. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's actually we we were there. We were there because um, it's where Paul reveals Paul Revere's houses. Oh, so yeah. like we like walked past it. It was too late to go in. Mm-hmm. That site though, where his house is, was actually the original site of Increase Mather's home, who is the father of Cotton Mather's from like Salem witch trials. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, fun fact. <laughs> Don't name your kids increase, please. Yeah, Puritan times were a weird time. We're naming <laughs> people increase, like remembrance, mm-hmm. like cotton. Basically, anything they knew how to spell. It doesn't matter if it was a name or not. Virtue. The distilling company specialized in the production of ethanol. Mm-hmm. And in uh, 1915, they built a 15-foot tall and 90 feet in diameter holding tank um, that was on the harbor side of Commercial Street. And the tank was used to offload molasses from ships and store it to later be trans- transported to their ethanol plant in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So it was just a holding area. Right. Uh, now, due to World War One, they actually, like built this tank because there was a rising demand for industrial alcohol for the use in dynamite and other explosives. Yeah. Uh, so that's why this was like there, even mm-hmm. though World War One was over by 1919. That's why it was there. That doesn't mean you move your tank. You don't move your tank. It's still there. That's it's still on it, yeah. a harbor. It's yeah. like right. It's literally next to the harbor. So around 1230 p.m. on January 15th, Two million and three hundred thousand U.S. gallons of molasses exploded out of the large storage tank and rushed through the streets of Boston at thirty-five miles per hour. Thirty-five miles an hour, you say? Yes. On January fifteenth, you say? Yes. I thought molasses in January was supposed to be slow. We are just gonna crush that belief. I guess so. Yes, we are, uh, and we're we're gonna we're gonna get into like. The science behind why it actually did move that fast. There have been scientists that like proved it. Uh-huh. That the the that the eyewitness reports of it moving that fast are actually correct and not just like an exaggeration. I'm sure it helps that Boston is all hills. It's, v- it's very hilly. You know, I didn't look up if this is at the top of a hill. <laughs> it's a great question. It probably is. It somehow every part of Boston is, is on uphill. top of a it's hill. It's all uphill. There's no downhill. I don't understand how it happens. 
Also, no one knows how to drive in Boston. Everyone is a freaking maniac. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the show before, but yeah, as... Didn't we do a whole episode on Boston? No. No? Was that before we heard this show? Yes. Oh, okay. So as pedestrians, I was very confused (laughs) because every time we would come up to a crosswalk and it would say, hey, don't go yet, all of the drivers would stop and let us go to show how polite and nice they were. But then if it was our turn to cross... They would just blow through because they're late. I don't under... Just... uh, uh. And like if you jaywalk, the cars stop for you, Mm -hmm. but they don't stop at the crosswalks. No. Or at, like, stop signs. No. I didn't... I was so terrified to cross the street. We spent a few days in backwards land, and I did not like it. I did not like it. I mean, I liked... I liked the food. (laughs) I liked the whale watching. Oh, that was great. I did not like streets. (laughs) Philadelphia is is much better for walking. Yes. Yeah. Because you know why? The streets are so, like, tiny. Mm Mm-hmm. No one's going to do anything crazy. Uh, so when the the tank exploded and the molasses flowed, mm-hmm. uh, people reported feeling the ground shake like an earthquake. Others heard like a rumble, as like a train rushing by, or like a thunderclap. Uh, some said they could hear the rivets shooting out of the tank. I want the scientists to test that one. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about any of those, but uh, so the molasses. Shot through Boston as a giant wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, it said that it at its peak, it was like 25 feet high. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. it's a lot of molasses. Uh, and it had enough force to sweep buildings off their foundation and crush anything in its wake. Uh, a truck was hurled into the Boston Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, cellars were flooded and people were hurled through the streets, some having their bro- their bones crushed by the force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and others were drowned by the molasses and debris hitting them. But at all the funerals, there were so many snickerdoodles. Just snickerdoodles <laughs> for days. Yeah, and gingerbread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Several blocks were flooded with two to three feet of molasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, 21 people were killed and 150 injured. I'm going to call this, like, the one last hurrah of the 1800s in America. Like, there is something very 19th century about a molasses flood that kills 21 people yeah, in the streets. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the Boston Post wrote, Molasses waist-deep covered the street and swirled and bubbled around the wreckage. Here and there struggled to form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a th- Thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnarled. Human beings struggled likewise. Atreyu, no! <laughs> yeah. Uh, poor Artax. Uh, so first to respond mm-hmm. were uh, 116 cadets under the command of H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket. Uh, that was a training ship that was just docked down the street. All right, men, you're not going to believe this, <laughs> but. This is what we're going to do today. Um, the, the ship was from the, or from what is now known as the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they 
first off made sure that like people that were just gawking stayed out of the way and then also started the rescue efforts uh, in the knee-deep molasses. Mm -hmm. And then soon after, there were police and army and navy and Red Cross that arrived as well. A makeshift hospital was put up in a nearby building that did not get like destroyed by the molasses. Uh, and the rescue efforts lasted for four days. Um, and they were grueling because you had sticky, thick molasses you're trying to dig people out of. Mm -hmm. Apparently, some of the dead were so glazed over in molasses that it was hard to recognize them. Hmm. Uh, and there were some that were swept out to Boston Harbor and not found for a couple months. But if you did survive... And you were just killing time until someone could get you out. You had a snack. And a whole lot of coughing because you've, like, inhaled molasses. A glass half full. Come on. <laughs> of molasses. Glass half full of molasses. The one thing I, like, couldn't find in my research was, like, any information on, like, lingering, like, symptoms people might have had from the fact that they I were, like, inhaling molasses. Sticky lung disease, they called it. Seems like that could be a thing. <laughs> Uh, so the cleanup efforts uh, were hard, because, um, mm -hmm. like, how you clean up, like, two and a half million gallons of molasses? You wait for it to rain a lot, a lot of times. <laughs> Plain water doesn't, like, do a lot to just cut through it. Uh -huh. It takes a lot. Yeah. So they eventually started using salt water from the fireboats in the harbor, and that actually, like, breaks up molasses more. Oh, okay. And faster. So that helped. And they also tried to use, like, sand to, like, sop it up. Mm-hmm. And it took them about two weeks to... Two weeks and uh, several hundred people to clean up the immediate area. But it took a heck of a lot longer to, like, get rid of all the molasses. Mm -hmm. um, people are coming from everywhere to help with the rescue, to clean up, to search for their families, to just look... Mm -hmm. And then they're tracking molasses throughout the greater Boston area. <laughs> hey, wipe your shoes. I it, Just take them off. No, just take, no. So, your shoes are stuck to the mat. I'm sorry. So there was molasses down streets, on the trains, in homes. It is said that everything that someone touched was sticky. You mm -hmm. couldn't find an unsticky surface anywhere. And, and the harbor still tastes like tea anyway. <laughs> it's just a big old concoction now. Well, and now it's sweet tea because <laughs> it's said that the harbor was brown with molasses for months, mm -hmm. like into the summer, um, and that the area smelled of molasses for decades. It's hard to open a bakery. Yeah. People come in, they, they took take a look, they get one whiff of your wares, and they remember the weeks of funerals and pain. <laughs> yeah. It's not good for business. Yeah. Uh, so a class action lawsuit was brought against the company, uh, one of the first in the state history. And the company claimed the tank was blown up by anarchists who dropped a bomb inside. So, like, they were not at fault or liable for anything. Definitely anarchists. What did the anarchists have to say about this? Did they ever find the fiendish anarchists? There weren't any anarchists. <laughs> After a three-year trial, an insane amount of testimony later, the court appointed an uh, auditor, mm -hmm. found the company responsible. 
$628,000, which is about $9.2 million now, was paid out. Um, relatives receiving about $7,000 or over 100000 nowadays uh, per victim. I mean, that makes sense because all the anarchists I know would probably be down with molasses. I mean, it's vegan, for one. Yeah. 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 So if it wasn't an anarchist, mm -hmm. what did they find the company responsible for? The inquiry revealed that the USIA's treasurer was appointed to oversee construction of the tank. Mm-hmm. A man who had no architectural or engineering experience. Well, he does know how to balance one thing, a budget. Yeah. Uh, basic safety tests were completely ignored, uh, such as filling the tank with water to see, like, does it leak? Well, if it leaks, then we've got, like, millions of gallons of water running through Boston, and that's no good. Uh, the tank was known to leak so badly that they painted it brown to hide it. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, they also ignored warning signs, um, such as any time that it was filled, it groaned. Mm-hmm, that's normal, that's fine. Uh, so the tank was a freaking ticking time bomb, and it had actually only been filled to capacity a handful of times before the accident. Mm-hmm. So they were just like... Playing with fate, waiting for the day. Was their accountant the anarchist? Were, were they <laughs> trying to tell the truth in coded language? No. Okay. Uh, so quite a few uh, different groups of people have done research uh, recently on this event. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2014, research uh, looking at the tank mm -hmm. found that even with the lax standards of, was it 1915, uh, the steel that was used in the construction was half as thick as it should have been for the size it was. Mm -hmm. It didn't have enough manganese, uh, which meant that the metal was very brittle when it was cooled below 59 degrees. Um, and on this day, it was like a high of 40. Well, it was January in Boston, after all. Yeah. I'm sure it gets below 59 a lot. Um, and they also found out that the rivets were flawed. Um, and they believe that a lot of the cracks and leaks formed at the rivet holes mm -hmm. to start. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, a team out of Harvard looked at the data from the disaster and compared it with reports and articles and maps and did their own research on the behavior of molasses flooding a scale model. <laughs> I want to see this video. I think there is a video out there. Okay. Uh, the research concluded that the reports of the high speed of the flood were credible. Mm -hmm. there, there are several factors with that that make it like why it happened or like why it was real, mm -hmm. you know. So the tank itself, first off, was um, on the warmer side due to recently being filled. Anytime mm -hmm. that they were like transferring molasses from one thing to another, they warmed it. And since it had just received a shipment, like, the two days before, mm -hmm. it was still warmer right, because so it, it flows faster. Okay, yeah. You know, you can, you can empty it out quicker. It'll take forever if it's cold molasses. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And because they just dumped, you know, how many thousands of gallons in there, it's going to take a while for it to, like, level out temperature-wise. Uh, molasses is also, like, one and a half times heavier than water. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you got, like, a full tank, there's a lot more, like, potential energy there mm -hmm. that when it gets released, it's it's going to go crazy and pulverize everything. 
one of the factors is, is like once the collapse happened and the molasses started going, it like went really fast and quick. Mm-hmm. So we got that huge wave and a lot of force. But then because it was like colder outside, it cooled down, mm-hmm. which which meant that it didn't spread as far and it like didn't thin out. Mm-hmm. So as it like after its like initial release, it just got colder and thicker and it meant people got stucker. <laughs> yes, stucker and sicker. Stucker. And, you know, that, that's why people were, like, suffocating in it. And it didn't help that the night after the accident, that first night, the temperatures dropped below freezing. Mm-hmm. So it got even thicker, which meant that, like, it was even harder to rescue people who were still stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And about half the people who did die died because they were stuck. Right. And they couldn't get them out. With this, I was like, okay... What does, you know, 2.3 million gallons of molasses do to, like, the surrounding ecosystem? There's other people who question that as well. (laughs) Theoretically, lobsters are immortal. They do not die of old age. (laughs) Yeah. So if we get really lucky, we can ask one. Yeah. Yes. You know what they'd say? (laughs) It was pretty sweet. Oh. It's hard to know, you know, what the actual effect was Mm -hmm. in Boston. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, unfortunately, in September 2013, we got a real life example of what it could have been. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, a faulty underwater pipe in Honolulu Harbor uh, released 233,000 gallons of molasses. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, And unlike, you know, with oil spills, molasses doesn't stay at the top. It sinks to the bottom. Right. And it created a feasting grounds for bacteria, which, like, ate it and grew and repopulated and Mm -hmm. basically sucked all the oxygen out of the water. Oh. Uh, So coral species were injured and killed, and it's estimated that at least 26,000 fish and marine life suffocated and died in the harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took months for the harbor to recover from this, and it was only a tenth of the size. Mm-hmm. Now, it's hard to know, again, the exact impact on Boston, um, but what we do know is we're really freaking lucky it happened in January. (laughs) Because cooler temperatures mean bacteria go slower. Right. They consume slower. And that means that the oxygen was likely not depleted at such a fast rate as in the temperatures in Honolulu. Right. Where that's just worst case situation. (laughs) The real issue would depend on how much molasses was actually still around when the water temperature started to rise. Yeah. Um, And reports say that it was, there was still molasses come summer. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was 1919. Hard to know. People move on. They (laughs) forget to report about stuff. Uh, So some of the outcomes that may have happened, other than just, like, fish dying. Yes. Um... This researcher uh, theorized that it could have also affected the harbor plants because Mm -hmm. it would be blocking out sunlight and they wouldn't be able to photosynthesize. Right. Also, just, okay, even if it doesn't take away all their oxygen, now we have marine life trying to swim in molasses. 
<laughs> and like are probably coated in molasses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's probably not going to be good. That's not great. No. Don't know for sure, but in a lot of ways, we're really lucky it was January. And for three years, everything at Legal Seafoods had this glaze. <laughs> this glaze? It just came with a glaze of its own. <laughs> uh, so after the event, the tank was not rebuilt, uh, and the property became a yard for the Boston Elevated Rail- Railway. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently is owned by the city as a recreational complex, and there is a small plaque that marks, you know, the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, After the trial, uh, many new laws and regulations changed, like happens after pretty much every disaster. (laughs) You would hope. Um, There were more requirements for oversight by licensed architects and civil engineers. Can't have your treasurer just do it. (laughs) But what if my treasurer promises that it's okay if the thing makes a groaning noise? And the walls are half as thick as our other tanks. No! So that is the Boston Molassiker. <laughs> We're going to take a break. And after that, I'll be back to tell you about something a little closer to home. At least for the two of us, anyway. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. 100 years ago, there wasn't just industrial accidents. There was also sports. Sports. So we're going to talk about the 1919 World Series, famous for its Chicago Black Sox. Oh. Yeah. Oh. All right. So the short and familiar version that I'm sure many of our, our listeners know already is that the Chicago White Sox took money from gamblers to throw the World Series. Then they went on trial, and and this guy named Shoeless Joe was involved somehow. Let's get into a bit more detail than that, however. Okay, good, because I'm like, what? <laughs> Tell me about Shoeless Joe. I will, I will. Will I learn why he is Shoeless? Uh, it's a nickname that started when he was playing, like, local club ball in uh, South Carolina, and his shoes were giving him blisters, so he took them off in the middle of a game. Oh, one time. One time, and it followed all, him for the rest of his life. That's all you gotta life. do. Yeah. That's all you gotta do is do something once, and you'll never live it down. Uh, the first thing that you should know is that everybody knew that baseball was a dirty game. Fixing was common and almost impossible to prove. And so the league chose to just ignore it to maintain their deniability. Not, not to also miss the fact that, like, you played it on dirt. this isn't the story of an unusual event it's just the first time that it could no longer be ignored how you gonna get those stains out we'll talk about that too actually really yes like how how they the the shout of the time oh i feel like shouting all right (laughs) uh some examples it is thought though not proven that the cubs through the previous world series the the 19 uh uh six the, the 1918 World Series to the Red Sox. Yeah. Uh, baseball was the biggest entertainment industry in America, and it was propped up by its image. You know, baseball, it, it was a place 
of, of romance and wonder and, and you know, the, the great equalizer of society. Mm-hmm. Everybody played baseball and eventually died. And that was the one thing holding America together. I don't want to play baseball if I'm going to die. Well, even if you don't, you will. Eventually, we all will someday. But our story specifically starts with Charles Comiskey, owner of the Chicago White Sox. I always thought there was an N in that name. There isn't. Now, Comiskey was a baseball man through and through. He, he was really he the was first... He was very round. He was Mr. Met, yes. No, he uh, had he stitching was, all over. He was the first baseball owner to come from the game. He, he played professional ball in the 1800s and early 1900s. In fact, he invented where first basemen play. First base. Before him, first baseman played on the bag, and for a little while after him, he invented the uh, uh, position of being behind and within uh, uh, the infield. What's on the bag mean? Like hovering around the base. Why is it on the base? Because they were bags. It's the 1800s. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, he was also a founding owner in the American League. His plan as an owner was to buy the best team in baseball by giving players big ol' gifts up front or just big uh, uh, cash payments to whoever they were playing for instead of him. Oh. Uh, Like, he paid $65,000 to sign Eddie Collins. Uh, He paid another $65,000 to buy Joe Jackson's contract. That's about a million dollars in today's uh, buying power. Yeah. But he's a businessman, and once a player was on contract, he could do whatever he wanted. This is because of the reserve clause. What that meant was, at this point in baseball, the team that signed your contract had your contract for life until another team, you know, traded for it or bought it off of them. That's bullshit. You would play for them or nobody. Yeah. This was also a time before the players' union. Yeah. Now, while uh, it is true that the the Sox had the highest payroll in baseball, that's because some of their uh, players were getting $6,000 a year. That's a lot. Some of their players were getting $2,000 a year. That's not great. Oh. Not great at all. And even $6,000 a year, that's like, you put that in today's buying power, it's more than, you know, what we make, dear but it's certainly not what uh, professional sports players are known for making these days. Yeah. Far, far, far below. Oh, yes. Uh, so they didn't get cool entrance music then. No, no, they, they, no one was playing No Diggity when uh, Joe Jackson went out to the plate. For a lot of reasons, actually. <laughs> But Comiskey didn't just uh, save money on, you know, his non-star players. He uh, cut costs wherever he could. Like, every other team uh, had a $4 a day meal allowance. Uh, The Sox had $3 a day. Uh, He would not launder the uniforms, instead requiring players to launder their, their uniforms at their own costs. What? They didn't. They were all very smelly. They became famous for playing in filthy, filthy uniforms until he finally relented. So smelly. He promised his uh, ace pitcher, Eddie Sycott, a $10,000 bonus if he pitched 30 wins in a season. Then when Eddie got to 29 wins, he benched him. Wow. (laughs) 
The Sox in 1919, they won the pennant. They were absolutely the best team in baseball. Uh, Some writers say they were the best team in the history of baseball, at least up until the time. And so they were headed to the biggest World Series ever. By that, I mean one huge, huge crowds, even paying higher than ever uh, uh, ticket prices. But also they extended it to a best of nine series. Oh. So they could sell that many more tickets. Oh, boy. So now we begin the very confusing story of who did what for who and for how much. What is happening? (laughs) That is the question. So Boston gambler and bookie Sport Sullivan. Oh, oh. was that a nickname or did his parents just name him really well? He was nicknamed Sport Sullivan because he was a sportsman himself. Uh, He offered first baseman uh, Chick Gandel $80,000 to fix the series. Unless you believe the sources that say uh, Chick Gandel approached him instead. Oh. That's probably the case. It is probably the case that this was the player's idea, but, like, everybody was into the idea. Yeah. Uh, Sullivan may also have fixed the 1914 World Series. Oh. Yeah. Uh, On the road in New York, Gandel collected seven teammates in his apartment in the Ansonia Hotel and told them all about it. Yeah quick sidebar about the Ansonia Hotel. It was this huge Beaux Arts residential hotel. It had a full farm on the roof. What? And I mean a full farm. There were 500 chickens up there. What? They had an elevator just for the dairy cows to go up and down. Well, yeah, because cows can't do stairs. Cows can't do stairs. We all know this. Uh, There was a bear on the rooftop farm. I don't know, just for color. Got a bear. It was a small bear, uh, according to sources. What the hell? There were Turkish baths in this hotel. Uh, There were live seals living in the fountain in the lobby. Other residents over the history of the the place included Igor Stravinsky and Babe Ruth. Oh my god. It was a happening place. It's condos now. Yes, come see my new condo over here. This is where the chickens lived. (laughs) And here's the cow elevator. We use this one to take the dog out. So in in any case, this hotel meeting was the beginning of the fix. Sort of. Probably. <laughs> this is going to be one of those episodes. How, how do you like, it's 19 whatever, like mm-hmm. no one, there's no building standards. I was going to say, like, how do you get approval to have a farm on your roof? Well, they didn't. And by the time of this meeting, the farm had already been shut down by the city. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it, it was like was, 1915 or 14. They had to close down the farm. It, did it not last very long? Is it because the cows were like peeing over the side? <laughs> like a, a cow pie just like went flying and like crashed into someone's car below. I don't I don't know about that. Uh, I, I know more about the baseball part of the story, frankly. <laughs> I have so many questions about this farm. <laughs> so there's another gambler uh, called Sleepy Bill Burns. What is with these nicknames? And he also approached Chick Gandel and uh, Eddie Sycott, the aforementioned uh, uh, pitcher, to offer $100,000 for a a fix. Yeah. The the idea is that these gamblers will pay whatever it takes to the team, and they will bet with their insider uh, information and make a a tidy profit uh, on the fix. Uh Uh-huh. 
Now, Burns had pitched for Chicago himself in his own professional baseball career. He lasted about five years. He didn't make much of, you know, himself in, in on the field. But his season in Chicago, 1910, the Sox set a record that still stands for the worst team batting average <laughs> in Major League history. Was it all because of him? I mean, it, it's a team average. It was because of everybody. Chick Gandel was also on that 1910 team. Mm-mm-mm. So they had a history. So uh, when, when you convert this 180 combined, uh, we, we get to a total promise of around $2.4 million in today's buying power, just to lose a few games to the second best team in baseball. Yeah. Nothing could be easier. Yeah. So both sets of gamblers approached New York mobster Arnold Rothstein to fund the scheme. Sullivan went himself and burns through an ex-boxer, Abe Adel. Mm-hmm. Rothstein said he was never involved, and no hard evidence ties him to either scheme, though both uh, uh, like gambling syndicates uh, have said that, yeah, he, he was providing money for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also says he didn't bet a dime on the series, uh, but if you had a gambling empire and you knew at least two fixes were in the works, yeah, it is rumored that he made uh, about half a million dollars, and that's half a million nineteen nineteen dollars off of his bets in this uh, in the series. Dang. So in the days approaching game one, the odds suddenly shortened. There was a huge mass of bets going for Cincinnati to win on rumors that the series was fixed. Mm-hmm. Rumors that were only supported by this huge shift in the late betting. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that doesn't mean anybody squealed. That, that doesn't mean that uh, people were, were uh, talking. It just, it's just how baseball was. Yeah. Game one was played on October 1st. So far, only $10,000 had been paid, all of it to starting pitcher Eddie Sycott. Oh. He had been up all night on the 30th, sewing it into the lining of his coat. <laughs> his second pitch hit the batter square in the back, which was the agreed signal to the conspirators that the fix was set. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of his pitching wasn't that much better, particularly in the fourth inning. Uh, and the Reds won handily 9-1. to one. Uh-huh. Game two was lost by pitcher Lefty Williams. Was he a lefty? I th- I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he pitched <laughs> left-handed. Uh, he was pitching wild on the promise that he'd get his share, and he lost the game 4-2. to two. Uh, Sleepy Bill scrounged up another $10,000 for Gandal, who distributed it to the other conspirators. Unless he didn't. Oh, People generally don't take reliable written notes on criminal conspiracies. Yeah. And there are a lot of, like, conflicting reports. Some of these sources are people's testimony in the upcoming trial we're going to talk about. Some of it's to papers uh, a year or two later or 20 years later or 40 years later. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people's own uh, stories don't match what they said previously, depending on when they said it and to whom. We're going to do the best we can here. Yeah. So rookie Sox pitcher Dickie Kerr wasn't in on the fix, so it was up to others to tank game three for him. Mm. They didn't. The Sox won that one three nothing. Dickie Kerr is a hero back home in Chicago. It was the first home game of the series. Ah. 
But two of those runs were brought in on a Gandal hit. So this is why some people believe that there was no post-Game 2 payment. And this is Gandal saying, hey, pay us. Yeah. Or the fix isn't in. Yeah. Uh, Burns allegedly bet his seed money on Cincinnati, so he was running out of money to support the fix. Allegedly. Mm. Uh, Burns' plan was, instead of taking the money that was supposed to go to the players and giving it to them, I'm going to take the money that's supposed to go to the players, bet against them so they'll do their job, then pay them out of part of those winnings and pay me extra from the rest because I'm smart. Mm Mm-hmm. Doesn't always work that way, Bill. No. Game four, uh, Psychot came out to start again, his second time, and the pressure was on to throw the game without looking so much like he was throwing a game. Yeah. And he succeeded at both, losing 2 nothing off of really only one bad inning. Mm-hmm. Now, either before the game or after it, Another $20,000 came in from Sport Sullivan, which Gandil split four ways. Now, half the conspirators had at least some cut. Probably. <laughs> Game five, we're back in Cincinnati. Lefty Williams is back on the mound, and the Sox lost 5 nothing, putting Cincinnati one game away from winning the World Series. When Dickie Kerr's cur- turn came up. I was going to say up to bat, but no, he was pitching. But then again, there was no designated hitter. So he was also batting, yes. Yeah. No matter what turn of phrase I use, he became Chicago's hero as the only pitcher who could win a dang game, <laughs> bringing the series forward to And in game seven, the real Eddie Sycott came out to play. Were they trying to flex to get the other 150000 they were promised? Is this a story of men's pride and the romance of baseball? I don't know, but they won the game either way. <laughs> After the game, some dangerous-looking men visited Lefty Williams and told him just what would happen to his wife if the next game wasn't fixed up tight in the first inning. Oh. At least that's how the story goes, but that didn't really happen. Oh. See, the most famous account of the fix is a book uh, by Elliot Asinoff, Eight Men Out. Uh Uh-huh. And this book uh, is even more famous as a feature film starring D.B. Sweeney, one of your favorites. Yeah! Charlie Sheen, everybody is in this movie. Uh-huh. But in 2003, the author, Asinoff, admitted that this particular event was entirely made up. Oh. And he said his reason was as sort of a, a copyright thing. He would know whenever somebody was using his version of events without his permission. Oh. Which is a great way to justify just wanting to have some exciting narrative tension in your book. Yep. Which is then even more exciting in the film version. Yeah. But it does seem like something like that easily could have happened if you look at how Williams pitched the next day. Yeah. Now, for for the historical record, at least, Sycott, Joe Jackson, and Lefty Williams' wife herself all did have stories about getting threats during the fix. Oh. Uh, so, we get to game eight. Played October 9th, 1919. Every game was played one day after the other, except for one day where there was rain. Oh. So eight games in nine days. Lefty gave up three runs before getting pulled in the first. Oh. He pitched one third of an inning and gave up three runs. Oh, boy. The Reds won it 10 to 5, 
winning the series. The rumors of dirty play were revived because these were not the socks that won the pennant. Maybe they're tired from playing eight, you know, eight games in nine days. Well, the Reds did the same, so... They were sleeping more. <laughs> now, rumors are easy to ignore if you want to. And it's in everyone's best interest to want to. <laughs> if you're a fan and you believe it's fixed, then you can't enjoy your team. <laughs> and if you're an owner and people think it's fixed, then they're not going to pay you your, your ticket charges. No. So sports reporter Hugh Fullerton put together an investigation by comparing plays and statistics. And no Chicago paper would run it. Oh. Baseball Magazine attacked him and also the very idea that baseball could possibly be fixed. Oh. So the investigation only began in earnest when the Chicago Cubs president broke a story of a gambler approaching his players in the fall of 1920, nearly a year later. Mm -hmm. The closing days of the following year's pennant race is when things start moving. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, this set off a grand jury investigation in Cook, in Cook County, Illinois, which finally investigated the 1919 series. Mm-hmm. The, the Cubs president's, like, whistleblowing was a pretty safe play when it was a failed attempt. You know, it makes his team look like the, the upstanding clean players in the face of, you know, the, these dirty gamblers. Yeah. And whatever they find is, is going to hit all the other teams worse. Mm-hmm. Which is especially valuable in a city with two teams. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're doing. So Sleepy Bill Burns's uh, uh, partner in crime, literally crime, uh, went on the record to a Philadelphia paper and the story broke wide open. Psycott mm-hmm. uh, and Jackson went to the grand jury and confessed. Psycott was summoned and he spilled everything for immunity. Uh, Jackson, I think, volunteered to go and tell his, his story. Yeah. The trial was probably a bigger conspiracy than throwing the series. So lawyers representing uh, both Comiskey and Arnold Rothstein, the the big mob bankroll guy, had a meeting. And then the transcripts of Psychot and Jackson's confessions went missing. Oh, dang. Uh, The players then rescinded their confessions, and the trial went ahead without its central evidence. Oh. They still had the uh, uh, transcriptionist's shorthand and then they they remade those depositions and and presented them as evidence but it's still a hurdle when the actual signed uh uh, confessions are no longer in evidence yeah and then appear a number of years later in the possession of charles comiskey's lawyer Ooh, yeah now, Rothstein paid uh, Bill Sullivan to hide out in Mexico and Abe Adel in Canada. Ah. The president of the American League, though, Ban Johnson, had been a, a friend of Charles Comiskey, but their friendship went sour after years of, you know, being business partners, and they really hated each other. Yeah. So uh, Ban Johnson went to Texas to find Sleepy Bill uh, fishing in the Rio Grande and bribed him to testify before the Chicago courts. Comiskey was a guy in Chicago with a lot of money, though, so he found some ways to protect his team from going on the record. Of course. Uh, the, The lead prosecutor joined the defense team on day one of the trial. Oh. Uh, no gamblers were indicted in the entire process. 
Uh, Rothstein came and uh, uh, testified before the grand jury with such a compelling set of lies that nobody really believed he did anything. (laughs) And so by the end of the uh, uh, trial, the judge you know, gave his instructions to the jury and, and said that they could find the players guilty if they had conspired, quote, to defraud the public and others and not merely to throw ball games. How do you prove that? Yeah. So the eight players were found not guilty, all acquitted. Uh-huh. The court of public opinion, though, is another matter entirely. Uh, the other owners all saw a need to protect their image and the league as a whole, by scapegoating the socks. Oh. And uh, so they appointed a baseball commissioner to do it. Mm. This was being done in parallel with the trial. Mm. The first commissioner of baseball was federal judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Kennesaw. Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Dang. Again, a federal district judge still sitting the bench when he was given this job. He, he performed both for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had a reputation for, for being a, a tough, no-nonsense, you know, justice-above-all guy. You know, he, he had some landmark cases that were tough on big business. He was actually much tougher on people in the anti-war movement during World War I. Oh. So, so yeah, for, for two years, he was continuing to decide on cases, d- did some things that organized labor didn't like very much after uh, all the men were coming home from the war and, and the war effort. So then after two years of that, he retired to only be the baseballman. Mm-hmm. So the commissioner is the final arbiter of all disputes in recognized baseball. You can think of the commissioner as baseball king. Ooh. I'm imagining that really creepy Burger King mascot, but everything's replaced with baseballs. Also a fearsome, intense stare and a big shock of white hair. He was a scary looking man. Oh. Kennesaw Mount Landis. Uh, He insisted the position have the power to sanction every person employed in the major leagues. Oh. Not just the players, not just the owners, not just the the concession stand people, not like everybody is under the purview of Kennesaw Mountain Landis. You just want to say his name. I want to say Kennesaw Mountain Landis a lot of times. So the day after the eight players were acquitted, he issued lifetime bans for all of them. Oh, when we say a lifetime ban from baseball, that, that's sort of the, the common phrasing for what is technically being added to the ineligible list. Mm-hmm. What are you ineligible from? Well, you can no longer play in sanctioned games or work in any capacity for any affiliated team or act as a sports agent or have any business with organized baseball in any way. Like if you go in, if you go into the restaurant industry, they cannot sell your food at the games. Like you are banned from baseball. If you create the next Cracker Jacks, we will not sell it here. Right. Yeah. The Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown did not yet exist, but... As part of their bylaws, uh, you are not eligible to go into the Hall of Fame if you are on, if you have one of these lifetime bans. Go in, you mean like not be inducted or like you literally can't visit it? You cannot be inducted. I I do not know if they have like Like. a a Facebook with like Pete Rose in it and he's not allowed in in the building, but he's definitely not allowed to be inducted. You can't come watch this baseball game. Get out. Uh, So now these eight guys are unemployed with... Uh, ruined reputations, and they are banned from using their best talent. 
the ones that even got any money got less money than they could have made by playing Honest. So uh, most of them went out and they played for unaffiliated teams and barnstormed around traveling shows. This is called Outlaw Ball. Mm, I'm an outlaw Uh, of baseball. Instead of having to hit the ball with a bat, mm -hmm. you got to shoot it. (laughs) Yes, yes. Basically, this means semi-professional teams and like, hey, you used to be cool. Come join our our, uh, like local club team and we'll pay you 20 bucks a game. My version's much more exciting. Yes, it is. So the public bands and the the rising star of George Babe Ruth uh, uh, restored... His name was George? His name was George. Didn't know that. Restored faith and ticket sales. Uh, the game recovered so well that when Ty Cobb was accused of fixing games in 1926, the games he fixed were all also in 1919, by the uh. way, but the accusations came out in 1926, he just retired, oh. and the commissioner's office pretended it never happened. Oh. That's how healthy the game was by then. We could all pretend it wasn't dirty as heck. So Shout hadn't been invented yet. Yes. So let's talk about the the eight, the eight men out. Okay. The Black Sox themselves, starting with the ringleader and then uh, alphabetical order from there. Okay. That brings us to Chick Gandle, the first base fixer. That's a nickname I came up with. Uh, he never even showed up to play in the 1920 season. Oh. <laughs> the, these eight guys, all of them were still under contract. Yeah. S- seven out of the eight. Everyone but Chick was still playing in the 1920 season. They had a real shot at playing for, uh, at winning the pennant two years in a row, except they were all immediately benched when these accusations came out as Comiskey tried to cover his butt. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, the exception is Chick. Didn't even show up. He was playing 75 bucks a game for the Elks Club in Bakersfield, California. Nice. He might have collected thirty-five or even $40,000 for his role as broker. He said he didn't get a bit of it. Aww. He finished his playing years on those semi-pro teams in the Southwest. And in a 1956 interview, he, he laid out his whole version of events. Mm-hmm. He said that he took the lead in arranging the fix, but the player's plan was to take all the money up front, then play to win anyway so they wouldn't get caught. <laughs> he said again that, that he never got any pay at all and has no idea where all that money went. Mm-hmm. So then we go to Eddie Sycott, their ace pitcher. He confessed that he did it for the wife and the kids and the mortgage. He had recently bought a, a whole bunch of farmland in Michigan that he didn't know how to pay for with the, the way uh, Comiskey was stiffing him. Yeah. He was destined for the Hall of Fame, if that would ever be allowed. Uh, after his ban from baseball, he moved to Livonia, Michigan and became a DNR game warden. <laughs> And eventually farmed strawberries near Farmington. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Happy Felsch played center field uh, and admitted to receiving $5,000 for the fix, nearly double his salary that year. He spent 15 years playing outlaw ball himself, mostly in Montana and Western Canada. Yeah, those are locations that fit with my my story. Yeah. Yeah. The Saskatchewan Shooters. Yeah. Yeah. Now that brings us to Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, the the biggest name in this whole uh, scheme. He has the third highest career batting average in the history of baseball and the highest single season batting average. Uh, he tried to tell Comiskey what he knew 
twice, but Comiskey would not take the meeting. Because again, if we can all pretend it doesn't exist with enough plausible deniability, it doesn't exist. Yeah. His version of events is that he got $5,000 from Chuck Gandal, delivered to him by his roommate on the road, Lefty Williams, out of a promised $20,000. He was not in the initial meeting in Gandalf's hotel. Anytime the conspirators met, he was not there. Lefty Williams backs him up on this. His lost confession was that he was aware of the fix from other players. All of his information came secondhand. He never met with any of the uh, gangsters or gamblers, and he always played to win. Though he did say under oath that he could have tried harder. What baseball player who didn't win the World Series would ever say anything but, I could have tried harder? Yeah. Even a lot of the ones that win will look at that tape and be like, I could have tried harder. I could have won by more. And again, his play sure doesn't look like a guy trying to lose games. He had a higher batting average in the World Series than he did in the 1919 regular season. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, newspaper reports of the games don't talk about any multiple base hits to left field, which is where he played. Anybody who hit to left either didn't make it or was held to a single. That's good. That's good fielding. And some conspirators, when they tell told their version of events, said that Jackson was never one of them. They just told the gamblers that he was because they wanted a big name. Ah. That That's also a mirror of Rothstein's defense. I was never backing them. The gamblers just lied and said I was so that the players would trust them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are both good lies to tell in this kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, Fred McMullen played third base a bit. Uh, He had two at-bats in the the whole uh, eight-game series. Mm -hmm. But he was part of Gandalf's group. He got $5,000 for something. Some people say that he might have falsified scouting reports and given the honest players bad information on the opposing pitchers. Oh. He never went on any on the record with anybody about any of it. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Swede Reisberg played shortstop and was the muscle. Mm-hmm. He helped uh, Gandal keep the group in line. He's one of the guys that Joe Jackson was afraid of. Oh. And he definitely played to lose. He had 25 plate appearances and two hits. Oh. That's bad. He also made eight errors, a World Series record. <laughs> he played outlaw ball until at least 1927. Uh, Buck Weaver, the third baseman, and though he was in the initial meeting and, and all the, the big meetings to follow, he never agreed to the plan. He took no money. He played his best. Sports writers, like, in Chicago, when they're trying to, like, write through tears of their dashed hopes of winning the World Series, uh, would, like, talk about how, you know, Buck Weaver was the smiling hero, the only one who never lost spirit, and was trying to play his best even through it all. Yeah. Commissioner Landis even, or, excuse me, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, acknowledged that he didn't act to fix the series, but said that knowing there was a fix and not reporting it also deserved the highest punishment in baseball. Again, the record shows what happens to Joe Jackson, who did try to report the fix. He wasn't allowed to. Also banned from baseball. Yeah. 
Uh, he petitioned for reinstatement for the rest of his life, six separate formal petitions. One, one of his famous quotes was, there are murderers who serve a sentence and then get out. I got life. Mm-hmm. In his last attempt, he, he bundled up all of his papers, all of his correspondence, and sent it to a lawyer in New York who promised, I can get you reinstated. Those papers have never again been found or seen. Aww. Uh, so, so now the case is just taken up uh, as like a matter of principle by uh, mostly his family, a, a couple of nieces, some uh, other relations of Buck Weaver are still trying to argue his case against every successive commissioner in baseball. Mm-hmm. But wait, there's more. There's Lefty Williams. He played outlaw ball until opening a garden nursery company <laughs> in Southern California. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of them became small business owners. Uh, oh. Shoeless Joe opened a liquor store back in his hometown. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that brings us to some people who were not uh, among the, the nefarious eight, like Dickie Kerr, the heroic, honest pitcher. Mm-hmm. He refused to play in 1922 for the low-wage Comiskey was offering him and was banned himself, placed on the ineligible list, for violating the reserve clause. Oh, uh, he played a few seasons of outlaw ball with and against his former teammates. Oh. He was reinstated in 1925. Oh. Arnold Rothstein continued gambling, uh, continued living that mob life. He he started to make a whole lot more money on alcohol and drugs, though, once Prohibition began. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was shot in a card game in 1928. Oh. Many, many people have had lifetime bans from the commissioner. No commissioners more so than... Kennesaw Mountain Landis, but over the history of the commissionership, plenty of bans have been passed down, but quite a few of them have been rescinded, have, have had uh, their names removed from the ineligible list. Looking at the list, uh, who stays on it and who gets taken off, it seems the only unforgivable offense is fraternizing with gamblers in a way the league cannot ignore. Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever been banned for anything related to performance-enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. Names are removed from the ineligible list upon death. So, all eight players, and everyone else who's still banned but has since died, are technically eligible for the Hall of Fame on a technicality. Oh. In case anyone in Cooperstown is listening. Mm. Comiskey is in the Hall of Fame, though he did more to cover up the fix than any of the players did. And wasn't a very nice guy. Was not a very nice guy. No. So that's the end. Oh, okay. Okay. So what'd you learn? About your bit? About either. About all of it. Yeah. Tell me tell me all your learning secrets. <laughs> learning should never be a secret, dear. Then tell me so it's not. Like I said in the first segment, I do like that there was a bit of that 19th century spirit still alive in 1919, uh, where things, just wild, wild things are going to happen. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be terrible with a massive loss of life. Oh, yeah. But in the mo- it's the most ridiculous thing. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's the most ridiculous thing. I love it. <laughs> I told you it'd make a great Riverdale episode. Yes. Town is under syrup. <sighs> uh, I learned baseball things. Just about it in Just general. All of, I I I knew none of this. Like where first basemen stand now and why? I didn't know they never like didn't always stand there. Yeah. <laughs> didn't know that was the thing. 
all these lefties and chicks and uh, uh, all those left chicks and bucks. Like the, the intro to who's on first does make a lot of sense now. Baseball players do have weird names. They have such weird names. <laughs> Swede. The the big scary bruiser named Swede. Like like how do you get some of those names? That's what I want to know. Probably by being Swedish. Is that why? I feel like it'd be like my name's Steve Swede. No Steve Swede. Hearing was infamously bad in those days. Yeah. People were, like, drinking cocaine. Like, come on. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with your letters. First letters of the new year. Welcome back, everybody. It's a, it's a brand new year, and that means a brand new mailbag. Very excited. I'm excited. You look like you're falling asleep, so I'm trying to bring up the average. No, my back hurts a lot. So our first letter comes in from Ramona, and uh, dear, you have gotten officially an invitation to an anarchist banquet. Woo! Banquets! But Ramona also answers uh, the prompt for this episode, which was... As always, we wanted to hear people's favorite thing that happened in 2019. Yeah. And Ramona's is uh, this, this sense of a, a broad and global movement, or, or at least a series of individual movements that, that can recognize themselves and one another against uh, uh, austerity and neoliberalism in its many forms. And th- this sense of hope that there is that that there are people willing to to reach out and join hands in the the face of uh right-wing death cults in the first world. We also got a picture of dogs. Yeah. Odie and Moxie. Thank you. Oh, very nice. Thank you very much, Ramona. Kristen writes in answering our prompt of favorite thing for 2019. Uh 2019 mm-hmm. was a weird year for them. Uh, but their favorite thing is that they started therapy, and it's been really great. Uh, and they're so glad that they did it. Oh, congratulations, so Kristen. Good luck. Uh, Isaac writes in, uh, sort of similarly, their favorite thing uh, from the year was also ab- about dealing with their own mental health and, and diagnosis. So congratulations for that. And uh, they also mentioned seeing the end of the Metal Gear Solid 5 Let's Play. Yeah. And therefore, the entire 11-year saga that my friend and I I embarked on, not knowing it'd be that long. A lot of those games weren't out at the time. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks to you, Isaac, for for joining us on that. But they also share their favorite barricade device, chairs. Because you can not only barricade with it, you can use it as a stepladder or just, like, comfy, cozy... Uh, uh, furniture. You can do anything with a chair. Mm-hmm. You can hit people with it in the squared circle, brother. Thanks, Isaac. Bellaphone writes in, and their favorite thing from 2019 was the adoption of their very large doggo Gloria. And Gloria is very large and very adorable. We know because there's pictures. <laughs> there's pictures. I love Gloria. Thank you for writing in. Thank you. 
Phoebe writes in, and their favorite thing from 2019 is African Samurai, a book, a biography of an African man known as uh, Yasuke, who traveled to Japan. I, I assume he was only known as Yasuke after arriving there in the 1500s and became a samurai under Odo Nobunaga. Which, I mean, it's a pretty great story, and apparently this book in particular does it justice. So thanks for writing in, Phoebe. Uh, Sarah writes in with us with a show suggestion, and it sounds great, and I'm not going to tell you what it is in case we do it. <laughs> thanks, Sarah. <laughs> thanks, Sarah. Claritic writes in as well, and she had a pretty big highlight of 2019 standing for election to the Australian Senate. What? Yes. Australia votes with a preferential system, so she stood as the third candidate for Victoria on the Green ticket. So because of a whole lot of complicated election math, the Greens would have to do would have to do unusually well for them to earn three seats and fill one of them with her. We, we are not, as far as we know, listened to by any current members of the Australian Senate. Mm-hmm. But she technically still has a chance because... Australian politics is so weird. It's so messed up. Yeah. <laughs> but but to summarize, she did herself very proud. Over 1,600 people put her above every other possible candidate on their, their ballots, which is wild. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, the Greens vote incre- the, the green vote share increased, which she's very happy for. And I say congratulations and, you know, better luck next time. And I don't need to tell you this because I read your letters and know you agree, but uh, the best of luck doing all of the other things uh, besides just elections that are also politics and important. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Claritic. And good show out there. Nick writes in and answers one of our old prompts of favorite piece of public art, and that is the winged figures of the Republic and the star map they sit on at the entrance of the Hoover Dam. Ooh. Um, the winged figures are two angel-like statues with their wings pointed straight up, and the star map uh, is an art deco map that portrays the Nevada sky the moment uh, FDR dedicated the dam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that actually ties in to Nick's favorite part of 2019. The first thing is that they took a summer solo road trip to Las Vegas as a jumping off point for a road trip down part of Route 66. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a very exciting time because it was Nick. Nick has barely left his home state before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was also like his first solo trip. Uh, and it was just a really amazing experience of uh, seeing a lot of things and doing a lot of things. And they're looking forward to their next trip, mm-hmm. which might be more of Route 66. If you follow it, it all the way to the end, the, the east end <laughs> at least. it's It goes right dead ends at the Art Institute yes. of Chicago. You will hit Michigan Avenue and, and see uh, American Gothic if you keep going. I'm on Route 66 multiple days a week. Because <laughs> here it's just like Adams Street. Yeah. yeah. And I'm often on Adams. Um, but that sounds awesome, Nick. 
Uh, and another favorite thing of 2019 is that they finally got a full-time teaching job. Oh, awesome. Um, and it has been uh, stressful, mm-hmm. but they are loving it. And Nick also shared a picture of Cece, their now eight-month-old pit bull mutt. And Cece's adorable. Cece's a little sweetie. So thank you, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Jerry writes in, I think this might be the first time we hear from Jerry, glad, glad to have you, to share a, a uh, show suggestion that, that seems very unassuming. This one would be uh, of a piece with your uh, uh, Office Supply episode. Yes. yes. So thank you for that, Jerry. And thank you all for joining us through another year. Like I said last time, this is this is my big holiday. This is... I mean, not really, but th- this is when I get all reflective and weepy yeah. and then think about, you know, where we were at this time 360 days ago what, and all that. What's your favorite thing of 2019? Uh, malaria was eradicated from two more countries around the world. Well, that's good. That is really good. Other stuff in the health sphere include like uh, new drugs to prevent the spread of HIV. The new drug for cystic fibrosis. Ooh. That's mine. That's a good one. Trikafta. I was going to talk. I mean, it costs like $300,000 a year, but it is changing the lives of people with cystic fibrosis. And Mm -hmm. I had a student who I found out, um, she's like 13 now. Mm -hmm. She was approved to get it. Oh, fantastic. So I'm super pumped. I was going to talk about the uh, tests that made... That turns stem cells into insulin-producing cells. Ooh. And the uh, revolution that might become for people with type 1 diabetes. That's good, too. Yes. So, yeah. There, there are good things that happen. <laughs> there's good things There's in the good world. things that happen. Also, there's this dog that is staring at us, and she really wants them all the toys I have in my lap right now that I had to take away because they're squeaky. And it's adorable. But it, it's been soon. it's been another year of, of learning and growing and, and developing, and I think I think our show is better now than it was this time last year. And I would have said the same thing last year and the year before that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and thank thank you all for joining us for another year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you enjoy our show, you can always write in like these fine people. Yes, we do love to hear it, and those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail dot com. And we want to hear your show suggestions, like... Sarah. And like Jerry. And we want to hear your corrections and your questions and your stories and, and your uh, uh, responses to our usual prompts. And all of those can go to... History Honey's podcast at gmail.com. And while you're out there, we would appreciate uh, giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. New Year, new us. Uh, we do love to read them. And, oh, when those numbers go up, it, it's it's so gratifying. Yeah. Uh, you can also tell a friend. Tell those friends. Tell your barista. <laughs> we recently had a big run on downloads of our uh, Louisa May Alcott episode, actually. I wonder why. Because people are telling their friends with Little Women fever in the air. We gotta go see Little Women. I really want to see that. <laughs> I did make some friends feel better the other day when I informed them that Good Wives was not the title that Louisa May Alcott picked, Mm -hmm. that that was the publisher, and they were like, oh, good. (laughs) I was a little worried there. We're fun at parties. Yeah. Uh, You can also get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. At History Honeys. That's a fun place to hang out and, like, say words. 
Uh, History Honey's Instagram recently got a lot of pictures from our trip to the Field Museum. That's right. Every time we go there, we find more stuff that is either just the sort of thing we do on the show or specifically relates to episodes we've previously done. Yes. It's wild. Yeah. So with that. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.